Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Well Studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder and fine music on this Friday Eve. <laughs> we have made it. It's a little breezy but hot outside this morning is kind of the way I look at it. I went home yesterday after the show and decided to do a little work around the yard. Needed the the hedges have grown somewhat, so I was doing some shaping and trimming, pruning. Man, it's like work fifteen minutes and then have to sit fifteen minutes. Of course, my wife's calling me. She's out. Are you drinking water? Are you taking care of yourself? Taking it easy? You got to this time of year, right? Because it's hot out there and. We're headed over to that Neshoba County Fair next week, of course, where it's likely to be hot. Although I think it's going to cool down a bit. Just a little bit, yeah. Low 90s as opposed to high 90s. I can deal with that. There's a big difference there. I agree. There is. Uh, and, And speaking of the Neshoba County Fair, where all of those candidates will be over there in the pavilion at Founder Square telling the good people of Mississippi all about themselves and their plans. Wow, this lieutenant governor's race is heating up. It's devolved into a bit of a schoolgirl cat fight, honestly. Uh, I guess it's to be expected. Is it not? And we're inside of three weeks until Election Day, the primary, August the 8th, across the great state of Mississippi. That would be three weeks from two days ago. But, wow, we're starting to see it. Folks, if you're interested in a story concerning the mud slinging, check out Super Talk Mississippi News. Reading from the headline, Hoseman and McDaniel engage in mud slinging ahead of lieutenant governor's race. That article penned by Super Talk Mississippi News Director J.T. Mitchell. Most of this is occurring, of course, in the world of social media, if you've noticed. Well, I mean, we talked about it yesterday. That seems to be the only political realm that Chris McDaniel has much of a presence in at the moment. I mean, it's it's absolutely true that uh, with respect to his cash on hand, he, he he's limited on what sort of media buys he can make. 
Of course, on social media, you know, if you just post on sites, and there are a number of sites related to Senator McDaniel, um, but if you just post there, there's no fee associated with that unless you want to sponsor it and, and push it, right? Then there's, if you do that, and of course you can tell because in, on Facebook we're talking about specifically where he's most active, because you'll see uh, up in the headline portion of the post, sponsored content, something to that effect, which lets you know, and that's why you'll see it multiple times appear in your feed. You're paying for that. It's uh, it's actually a pretty neat system just from a... Yeah, it's on top and on Facebook, and if it's on Twitter and it's paid promotion, it's at the bottom. It'll say promoted. Okay, okay. I don't see the senator quite as active on Twitter, I guess, and I don't spend as much time on Twitter. Uh, so I, I, I can't really attest to that, but certainly on Facebook. And what we got going on is um, the senator maintains that Lieutenant Governor Hoseman was uh, the vice president, essentially an officer. So when you form a company and you register that with the Secretary of State, you're required to list the officers of the company. And if I'm not mistaken, and if Secretary of State Watson is tuned in or someone from his staff, I'm not mistaken, you have to identify, specify the officers. I think you've got to have three. You've got to have a Secretary of Treasurer, I believe, and a President and maybe a Vice President. I could be wrong about that. It's been a long time since I've filed, but I seem to recall some side companies that I had that were sort of loosely related to my main company that, of course, we filed. We had four or five different so-called side companies. And by the way, these side companies were in the real estate business, such as they owned the building my company, my main company operated in. That's a fairly common structure. So Adventure Technologies was my company. This is all on the Secretary of State's website. This is nothing private. And, And the real estate company was called Venture Properties. So it owned the building, and it leased it to Venture Technologies, which paid the rent to Venture Properties. We also did some leasing for customers, like customers would buy equipment. That's a very common purchase mechanism, procurement mechanism, large and small companies, and public sector. You lease the gear. You lease the the equipment. You use it a few years. You know you're going to upgrade it, so you just pay a a monthly lease payment, there's some residual assigned to it. And at the end of the lease, essentially, you turn it in and you just refresh. It's the same as it would be for a car. If you if you kind of come to the conclusion, I'm going to have a car payment permanently. I'm not going to buy it outright, pay it off, then drive it several years until the tires are falling off, and then go buy another one. I mean, that's one approach. But another approach is I'm just going to pay a lease payment make a lease payment, and there's some some limits on the number of miles you can drive without paying for overage, the excess mileage, et cetera, and there's some residual calculations. Bottom line is you, you pay the lease, you drive it three, four, five years, you turn it in, you go get another one, you just keep on rocking with a new lease payment. Generally, you see leases in motor vehicles for luxury lines. That's absolutely true. As a way to kind of... You don't tend to see an economy line vehicle with a lease option. Well, that's right. And and in some cases, the leasing companies won't even do that. They, they don't really... 
They're not interested in lease arrangements, lease sort of financing of those kinds of vehicles. That's absolutely right. But we had a side company called Venture Leasing. So the company, my main company, would sell the equipment to the Venture Leasing Company, which would then bill the customer, the end-user customer. Because the title is actually in the leasing company in that point, at that point, in that arrangement. So nonetheless... I'm just trying to figure out. I kind of got off on the subject. I apologize for that. But I'm just thinking about my own personal experience. I want to say that you got to have these officers. Chris McDaniel says, yeah, Delbert was a the vice president of a women's clinic that performed abortions. And the lieutenant governor comes back and says, yeah, I, I was listed. I think he was involved in the in the original legal work to form the company. And it's not unusual, if, like I said, if you have to have these three, you're a sole operator, a proprietor, it's not unusual to um, name your attorney that's helped you with the formation of the company, the legal work there, as an officer in the company. Maybe your accountant. I've seen that happen as well. Um, and I don't know the situation here. This happened a whole long time ago, back in the 70s. But nonetheless, that's well, the according to the AP, it was answered in 1998. Well, that's right, because in 1998, uh, the lieutenant governor ran for Congress, U.S. Congress, and, and this issue sort of hounded him then. And uh, he has, a, I believe, a letter from the doctor who formed this clinic who says, yeah, we weren't doing abortions during that time, that his, his tenure as an officer in the company ended before then, and then McDaniel comes out, the senator, with some documents that show he was still associated. I think the lieutenant governor said there's some mistake with the dates or something like that. Bottom line is there's a lot of he said, he said, she said stuff going on here, a lot of finger pointing on this issue. I, I don't really know if that moves the needle one way or another from a voting perspective. I'm just not sure. I think I think most people have made their mind up, and I don't think they're going to change their minds at this point. I do think there is a segment of the voter population that's undecided. I do think that's the case. Uh, And what I would say there is that they're likely to be influenced. This is just an observation and opinion by whose name they see the most. That typically does carry a lot of sway before one goes in to vote. It just does. That's why it's important to have money. And I talked about it yesterday, and some people called me after the show that are in the political realm that said that that, that's their view as well in consulting with candidates, that direct mail is the most effective campaign strategy. That most, I said yesterday, you know, everybody checks their mail and they see it. They may throw it away, look at it for two seconds, but it, what you laughing at? I'm just the outlier in that situation. It immediately goes in the trash. I don't even recognize it. Oh, it's junk mail. Okay. Like, if it's a big card, it's not for me. I don't have the money to spend on it. And I was it's junk mail. <laughs> I would say you're an outlier only based on information from these consultants that have said that most people are influenced by that. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Morgan Bogolin, opinion contributor at Super Talk Mississippi News at 1037. Richard Cross at 1105. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
in the Element Wealth Studio. We appreciate you joining us. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. The Dow up today, 241. The NASDAQ taking it on the chin Tesla and Netflix, somewhat disappointed. Netflix came out with better-than-expected revenue and also had, and so did Tesla. Tesla, however, is seeing margin squeeze. Elon Musk said he's okay with sacrificing some margin to acquire additional market share. Netflix did report. That since they've been cracking down on the password sharing, their number of subscribers is up. But the market's still not sold. I've seen, you know, different analysts with a wide range of outlooks and opinions on both of these companies. But they reported after the bell last night. And so that's driving the NASDAQ, uh, pulling it lower, shall we say. Microsoft also pulling back a bit. There is uh, more talk about this lawsuit uh, against the company concerning their team's web conferencing product. There's some speculation that uh, there's some folks that maybe came up with some of this look and feel. These are really complicated cases when you get into this technology because it's almost like taking two pieces of art and saying, yeah, it looks like you copied that one. You know, it's, it's just not quite as cut and dry as some things are. Uh, that where there's some sort of case involving intellectual property. So we'll see where that goes. That's got the markets uh, spooked a little bit on the NASDAQ side. But the Dow enjoying a pretty nice day in the green. The, the uh, bulls are at it over there. Who knows? Meanwhile, the president, I believe, is going to Philadelphia today to pitch his Bidenomics plan. <laughs> He's still trying to convince Americans that his economic policies are benefiting them, but they ain't buying it. Looking at some polls Quinnipiac conducted just last week, 13th through the 17th. What are the most important election issues for voters? Are they listening to middays because the voters weigh in and say, yeah, economy? Well, of course. At 31%. Preserving democracy comes in at 29%. Abortion, third on the list, 7%. Gun violence, 7%. Racial inequality, something that the Democrats probably dwell on more than anything, 6%. Hey, as old James Carville said back in the Clinton campaign of the 90s, it's the economy, stupid. Still holds true today. 
And I've, I've caught Rhino some interviews, just these random reporters on the street talking to folks out and about. What do you think about Biden's economic plan? How are you doing? Stuff's expensive. I can't afford it. I can barely make ends meet. Yeah, my pay's up, but things cost more than my pay. They've outrun my pay. And he, of course, keeps telling the country, look at how great everything is. Your pay's up. and But he fails to say, but yes, yeah, so is the cost of everything that we're buying. He went to Twitter yesterday, as a matter of fact, to promote this message. Inflation has fallen for 12 months straight, down to 3%. Which is still higher than it should be. It's really not even 3%. You bumbling idiot. It's not 3%. I don't know where he got that from. Good jobs and lower costs. That's Bidenomics in action. Jeez, can we get rid of this guy. No, wait. We don't want the other idiot that's VP. (laughs) How in the world did we wind up here? I do not know. So uh, another interesting polling question that Quinnipiac raised to um, 1,000 registered voters, eight, actually 1,800 registered voters, pardon me, 47% say they would consider voting for a third-party candidate in 2024. They're sick of both parties. 47% say no, so it's, it's 50-50. It's even. I can't explain what the other 6% said. Maybe they're having to think about it, because we only get to 94. But And I didn't read the methodology. You can probably find out and, and learn from reviewing that why we come up short of 100%. But the bottom line is, that's a big number of people that said, I just stole all the bums out. Let's get something new in there. No doubt. I think we're seeing that. I think folks are sick of both. And, and that's because, uh, as I've said so many times, we have deeply divided government. You can't really get anything done. And so it, it ends up that it's the deep state bureaucracies that affect our lives more than the people we vote for. And the Supreme Court has, to some extent, reined that practice in with the affirmative action, the EPA, things like that. These are all policies that came from the bureaucracies, and the Supreme Court said, nah, Congress didn't authorize you to do that. And you see now the Democrats are flipping out, want to change the whole structure of the Supreme Court, going crazy. It's radical because they adhere to the Constitution. What a radical idea. Now they get to know what it was like to live as a Republican for the last 40, 50 years under the liberal Supreme Court. That's true. It's good for the goose. It's good for the gander. At least now we're doing it by the book. You know, it's it's so all these these statements about the economy are so misleading because yes, it is true that inflation this year compared to last year has certainly moderated. It's declined. Yes, we've experienced a decrease over the last twelve months, but that's only because. We hit this huge plateau within a year and a half because of his economic policies. So since he's been in office, which should be what we measure, it's up 16%. That's just irrefutable fact. And when he starts bragging about the jobs, I looked at that, by the way, the manufacturing jobs, he always liked to boast about that. We're just barely now getting to where we were pre-pandemic. He hasn't created squat. 
But yet, he just looks at, oh, since I took office. It's unfortunate that we had this interruption in 2020 of this pandemic that really turned everything upside down. So any measurements you make that include that year, uh, honestly, are virtually invalid. They, they don't really reflect reality. What we should be measuring is how things were before that relative to how things are now. With respect to jobs, you didn't do jack squat. People just went back to work because you sent them all home. You shut it all down, stupidly, I might add. So there's no accomplishment there. There's no victory lapping to be done there. It, it just they refuse to say it. But I do think Americans get it because my sense is that the people that I saw in these interviews, this montage of interviews, I don't feel like were conservative or Republicans. I felt like, based on where they were, okay, because it would show, I'm certainly not trying to stereotype anybody, and they didn't ask them their affiliation, who they voted for, but just based on their location. These are deep blue American cities where pretty much you could count on almost anybody you talk to on the street probably a Democrat. Philadelphia was one of those cities, because that's where he is today. Do you think he'll go tour inner-city Philadelphia, which looks like a freaking war zone? It's rapidly deteriorating into what we're seeing in San Francisco. Just It hurts me to see such a beautiful city, such a vibrant, thriving city with so much culture, so much, so many great restaurants, fantastic weather and views, and they've just freaking ruined it. Because they're stupid policies. You think he'll go visit that? I mean, he still hasn't been to East Palestine, and he promised to go there. That's true. He hasn't. I also, that was February. With, that's we're true. Late July now. That's very true. The um, <laughs> the folks who have weighed in and commented on this tweet, <laughs> people are pretty creative. I know you like to follow a lot of that stuff. Uh, and of course, th- there is a. A, uh, a Twitter user called GOP, and it's got the check mark, so it's it's some Republican affiliated um, user account. Cost or, or at not, the very least, they have eight dollars a month. That's that's a good point. Cost or not lower. When Biden took office, inflation was one point four percent. Prices have risen sixteen point six percent since then, and inflation is still higher. That's absolutely totally accurate. That's, that's look. That's on the Bureau of Labor Statistics website. That's the official government website. That being the government, while Joe Biden's been in office, but Biden sure does love to polish a turd. <laughs> Unbelievable. Thomas, we're talking about inflation, buddy. You're talking about the national debt. Mississippi. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well Studio, we got uh, Morgan. 
Hey, we welcome Morgan Bogle, an opinion contributor, Super Talk Mississippi to Middays. Hey, Morgan, how's it going? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Doing fantastic. So I was reading your, your article published uh, on our Super Talk Mississippi website. Next up, future should be focused on empowering the next generation. Tell us what you, you mean by that. Yeah, so I work with the Boys and Girls Clubs of the Gulf Coast. I, I've been here about seven years and have moved up through the ranks. So I started in direct service with kids um, and now work on the administrative side. And, you know, after the pandemic, um, our kids experienced a lot. Yeah. Um, youth violence went up. Suicide rates went up. Um, our kids are struggling. And so what we have found is that preparing them for what's after high school um, is what's important. And so that's work the Boys and Girls Club has always done. But now more than ever, um, these kids need these wraparound services and they need a plan for their future. And it's not only helping them, but it's going to help us as a community. Yeah, so you've actually uh, worked with some of, of these children, right, in that regard, in the uh, Boys and Girls Clubs of the Gulf Coast. You serve as the Senior Director of Operations, so you encounter uh, these young people on a regular basis. What do you see? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I was actually talking with Ricky Matthews yesterday, and I was telling him um, we're here on the Gulf Coast, and I think sometimes people get it misconstrued that, you know, this isn't a problem that we have here, uh, but it is. Our kids are coming from communities where uh, they don't have mentors. They don't have the resources that they need, and they're inside of our clubs every day, mm -hmm. and sometimes this isn't the traditional look. Sometimes um, it's a kid with two parents that work in the medical field. One's a nurse and one's a doctor, and they're working 12-hour shifts, and yeah. these kids need someone who's there in the after school hours. So they're not, you know, the latchkey kids that didn't get involved, um, you know, in drugs or gang activity or teen pregnancy or, you know, anything that's going to keep them from realizing their full potential. And the organization, uh, part of the programs is part of the programs. You try to expose them to things, right, that could benefit them uh, in the future. So, for example, in your article, you say that you partner with local agencies such as uh, University of Southern Mississippi's Gen C program. I, I had the pleasure of speaking to the president of Southern Miss when I was in Hattiesburg a few months ago, talking about that program, which is world-renowned, honestly. I mean, it's, in, it's incredible, and it is a path to quite a productive and bright future. It absolutely is, and especially here on the Gulf Coast. So we have kids in Boys and Girls Clubs that are – two, three miles from the beach, and these children have never seen the beach. I'm not exaggerating. They've never been outside of the little community that they're in. And so Gen Z has been such a notable partnership for us. Tara Skelton is um, who works with us over there, and we took 30 kids. We got um, some funding through um, marine science, through NOAA, um, and these kids have gone on these experiential learning trips every single week this summer, and each one builds off of another. And the resources that Gen C has been able to offer to these kids, this is access to fleet operations, um, to Stennis, to Ingalls, that we would not have without that partnership. And these kids have discovered a whole new world of jobs that paying them, you know, even after two years, um, they're, they're making upwards of $60,000, $70,000, and they're right here on the coast. Wow. 
That's awesome. So uh, the organization also partners with uh, private sector entities in the area as well, right? You rely on them quite a bit uh, to support the programs. Yeah, absolutely. So some of our private partners, Mississippi Power has been a great partner of ours. Um, they funded a STEM makerspace program in a multimedia studio in Pastor's Jan here on the coast. Um, and, and kids, that has opened up an array of careers in broadcast and journalism and, and WLOX has partnered with us on that. Um, and so it turns into this feeder program where they're coming into the clubs, they're getting the experience. Um, Hancock Whitney is another great partner. They come in and they're talking with our kids, they're signing up as mentors, and it's feeding directly into their uh, career force. And so Mm. these kids, we've already seen some that have come back and gone to work for Hancock Whitney or other private entities, and it started with the relationships they built at the Boys and Girls Club. Yeah. What about just individuals, Morgan, that that might want to work with the Boys and Girls Clubs uh, as a mentor, just as uh, an adult sort of guide uh, to young people? Sure. Sure. So mentoring is something that Boys and Girls Clubs has always done, um, but we really expanded on that this last year. We've got some funding um, for mentoring uh, in in response to the teen violence that has really been on a rise here on the Gulf Coast. And so we have a dedicated staff that's been hired, seven people that have been hired um, to go out in these different communities. The schools are identifying kids. Harrison County Youth Court is identifying kids. And we're getting mentors in and pairing them based on career interests and so they uh it's kind of a play on the word pact the program is called impact and so it's having an impact on their lives but they're also making a pact with each other and their mentor that they're going to stick to this program and they're going to graduate high school and they're going to have a plan a post-secondary plan and so if someone wants to be a mentor you can go right to our website it's bgcgulfcoast.org um, we have all of the back-end training um, and support that the mentors need, and it's it's a crucial, crucial program here for us. Yeah. Do you do you ever run across kids that are just in in such deep despair that that they come into your program and and they've maybe had thoughts of suicide or something something in the Absolutely. way of just harming themselves? Yeah. Absolutely. That is something that we see more often than you may think. And so at Boys and Girls Club, our focus is youth development. And so we don't try to reinvent the wheel. We know we can't do it on our own. And so we have partners and Canopy Children's Solutions, Pine Belt Mental Health have been two of those really great partners that come in and, and we have a straight line to them. If we're like, hey, we have a kid that needs help. All we got to do is pick up the phone and they're there. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. So what what's uh what's on the boards for you? What what sort of plans do you have to even expand the mission? Yeah, so one of our big projects that we're excited about, um, our organization was founded by Senator Tommy Gallat. Um, And so we are paying homage to him um, and opening up a youth opportunity center in Gulfport. It'll Hmm. be called the Gallat Youth Opportunity Center. And um, the idea is that lots of nonprofit youth-serving organizations are going to come together under one roof. So there's wraparound services for these kids all in one building. So Open Doors Homeless Coalition has a Agreed to come in and focus on teen homelessness. Um, we have Canopy Children's Solutions that has agreed to come in and have an office. Mississippi State Extension 4-H will have an office as well as the um, resource room 
through uh, some funding that they got. And so that's our big project that we're working on. And a huge partner in that is Goodwill. And so they're coming in and they're going to do some workforce development training with us. We have some uh, virtual reality um, programming and headsets that we're going to get where kids can actually earn these certifications and things using virtual reality. And so this will all be in one place. If there's a child that has a need, you know, you can send them to the Youth Opportunity Center and it's going to be fulfilled. Yeah. When you uh, when you see the influence and the impact you've had, the organization has had on, on children and and maybe you get them on the right path, and then you watch them grow and succeed. How does that, how does that feel to you? That's a different type of feeling. And, and Ricky asked a similar question yesterday, <laughs> and I was telling him, um, you know, we have this program called Youth of the Year. It's the highest honor that a club kid can receive, and um, they they get up and and they do this speech in front of donors and um, stakeholders at our annual meeting. And it's amazing to see the impact of programs like Boys and Girls Club, that intervention and prevention. Now we're focusing on middle schoolers because that's where you can get in and it's prevention. And so seeing the kids go on, we have these success stories that go on for days and days and we keep up with our kids and we'll share on our Facebook page. We have one that's actually in Korea right now. Um, learning Korean language, going to teach over there. We have one at USM um, actually that's studying hmm. um, a project to bring water to kids in Zimbabwe. And so she's uh, doing some research work there. And so it's it's invaluable. It, it really is. And a lot of our kids, um, actually 60% are on scholarship. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Morgan, appreciate you coming on and, and sharing the story. Great uh, great article that you wrote there. Great work you're doing. We appreciate it. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I appreciate you. Middays is coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. With Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk, Mississippi. in the Element Well studio with the great Huey Lewis bumping us into this segment. That, of course, from Back to the Future, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was good. Good movie back in those days. Of course, we ain't making no movies these days. They're all on strike, right? And by the way, that actually did figure in to the investor sentiment toward Netflix. They're worried about them making content. And so Netflix says we're relying on the European film production industry. 
Speaking of film, it <laughs> just reminded me of this. Old Marjorie Taylor Greene up there on the hill. Folks, the whistleblower testimony yesterday, two of them, we, we shared with you that one revealed his identity. In fact, both of them, I believe, did just before they appeared in, uh, in front of the committee hearing. One, we told you, is a, I believe, a 13-year veteran of the IRS and was happy to disclose, I'm a gay man, I'm a Democrat, I'm married to a man, but facts are facts, truth is truth, law is law. I mean, my hat's off to him here. So, unlike our Department of Justice, he set aside his politics to seek the truth. Basically said, yeah, this guy got favorable treatment. There's no doubt that the DOJ interfered with our investigations. But Marjorie Taylor Greene... I think anybody not wearing blinders could tell that. Yeah, it's so clear. I agree with you. But The dude's got gigabytes worth of amateur porn and selfies of him doing illegal things, but he gets a little slap on the wrist. And she showed that to those in the room there. I mean, had the poster board with the, uh, the photos of Hunter Biden in a rather inappropriate scenes, and it's to the point where it had to be pixelized for broadcast on television. And somebody, one of the Democrats said, oh, please put that down, like, what's the problem? This is the president's son. This is fact. This is his own making, his own And those creation. same acts are in books you want to put in elementary schools, dumb Democrats. It's totally true. They, they, like, have no limits, no thresholds. You're banning books, yet you're objecting to what's being shown here. You're exactly right. In a room full of adults. <laughs> That's exactly Not kindergartners. Correct. That's just upside down. I'm predicting Jason Aldean will be Trump's running mate, 24. Try that in a small town, says Jerry and Pontotoc. No, nah, that won't happen, but that's sparked quite the controversy as well. Let's see. I Neil. can't take any of that crap seriously. I'm sorry. It, it is ridiculous that that we're, we're because you just got this. now that now that it's happened, now that CMT got <laughs> the attention they wanted, and Jason Aldean got the attention they wanted. Yeah. Now you've got these other artists coming out of the woodwork that we haven't heard from in over two decades. Give me some attention. <laughs> I have an opinion on the matter. That's so true. Cheryl Crow being one. You'd have. When's the last time you heard her name? You hadn't. 20 years? The lieutenant governor race has gone beyond needing a debate, way beyond needing a debate. think we need a cage match at this point, says Neil from McGee. You guys know I have offered to moderate a debate. I've announced that on the show. Um, and I, I've talked to the candidates about that, and that's not going to happen at this point. But we will have the opportunity to interview the candidates next week over at the fair, and we'll we'll ask the questions that uh, I think folks want to know about. I, I'm curious. Uh, ben from Madison yesterday texted in with what are the issues of importance to him in the state elections. We appreciate that. I, I'm just curious because you don't see a lot of focus on that from the candidates, do you, at this point? It's just 
I got you, you got me sort of stuff. You know, it's just a series of gotchas back and forth, I guess you could say. Uh, we were talking about the direct mail and what made me think about that is that the lieutenant governor is dropping pieces of mail across the Magnolia State. We had listeners from all over the state send us photos of those same push cards that I got in the mail at, at my house. It does take money to do that. You looked it up. It's not terribly expensive to buy a list Correct. in Mississippi. Now, the mailing effort, that can be kind of costly. I mean, it depends on how many households you're going to send it to, and you can get the, the bulk rates and so forth, but it's still got to have some money, and, and, and this is where Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman has an advantage. He's got ten times the money that Senator Chris McDaniel does. That's from the official filings with the Secretary of State we shared last week when they were uh, when they were filed, when they were due. And that could be a factor. Here's what I believe we're going to see in the next couple of weeks. A series of television ads in the local markets by the Lieutenant Governor. I'm not sure we'll see that from Senator Chris McDaniel. I think he will continue. I could be surprised by that, but I think he will continue to rely on social media and just face-to-face type meetings. He's very good at that. He's traversing the state over the next several days doing so. We're taking a break for Fox News and Super Talk News. When we come back, it's Richard Cross from Sports Talk Mississippi. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. to Hour 2 of Middays. We are live in the Element Wealth studio on this Friday Eve. Tell us about this Wildlife Foundation raffle. Oh yeah, the Mississippi Wildlife Foundation Conservation Raffle is going on right now and you can get your tickets for great prizes all while supporting the wildlife conservation and outdoor recreation in Mississippi. All you got to do is visit the raffle website. That's MWFP.com foundationraffle.com for more info on where and how to purchase raffle tickets the tickets are twenty dollars and can only be purchased online the ticket sales will wrap up at the end of the month on july 30th and the drawing will be held on august 14th but you do not have to be present to win there you go so uh we were just talking about this rather heated race between incumbent Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman and Senator Chris McDaniel. He, of course, no stranger to running statewide races. And I, and I will tip my hat to the man. He is uh, Henry Barber and I were discussing a couple of weeks ago. He can do more with less. And we, we talked about his trailing the lieutenant governor in terms of cash on hand. He can do more with less than certainly any candidate that I've witnessed in the state of Mississippi, arguably in the country. So I give him that. He, uh, he's able to really rally a lot of support with, uh, with minimum financial resources. And he's really good about, again, getting in front, personally in front of people. He just did a town hall here uh, in Madison, my home county, this past Monday. Our news director 
J.T. Mitchell attended and gave us an update on that. And he was asked a question, by the way, uh, Rhino, I'm told. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing this a little bit. I heard this from a couple of people. One of his the key tenets of his campaign is to eliminate the income tax, something that I've certainly advocated for. And uh, and so the, the issue, of course, is how do you do that and keep the budget intact without increasing taxes elsewhere? That's always on everybody's mind. Now, you can certainly look at the surplus that's been produced by the state, most recently the fiscal year ending June 30th saw a $700 million surplus. That's a little more than 10% of the general fund budget. And uh, I think our government is to be applauded for that. They, they had additional funding from the federal government as a result of the helicopter money sprayed upon the United States in the name of COVID relief. And I guess where I'm I'm being complimentary of our government is that they didn't rush out and spend every dime of that. Some states did. Some states did. Um, to the point where they've now found themselves in a deficit situation. California, the biggest one that comes to mind with a $30 billion deficit as a result of just crazy over-nutty spending even including that which they received from the federal government, which simply lapped on to our federal debt. Uh, but that's a piece, right? The question is, is that sustainable? I mean, that's anybody's guess. And you, again, you could ask a, a lineup of economists about that, whether or not that's going to continue. Is it structural now? Is it embedded in our economy, in our in our state's uh, fiscal environment, and you'd get different answers. Some would say, absolutely, that's going to continue. We can rely on that. And others would say, no, we got to be careful. That's probably going to be a thing of the past. We're going to start whittling away at those annual surpluses, not seeing those, even without any significant increase in spending at the state level. So just just speaking in terms of, okay, how do we offset the loss of revenue from eliminating the income tax? So the question is, for anyone who is campaigning on on that as a a priority and a a focus of their their vision, their platform, I, I submit we need to see your math. We need to see... Your plan, specifically, or do you mean in one year? Do you mean in multiple years over a period of time? Do you require in your plan some sort of uh, financial thresholds, some financial targets that we must achieve, such as revenue targets, surpluses that we must achieve in order to reduce the income tax, phase it in to elimination over a period of time in increments? Or are you saying, no, we're going to do that day one, and we're just going to strip out that nearly $2.5 billion, about 33% of revenue to the state? It's a serious question because, you see, nuance matters. Specifics matter. It's one thing to just 
present to the voter an idea, a position, something for which you advocate, you'd like to get done. It's another, though, to, to really drill down into the details and, and provide specifics on how to achieve that, that goal, that objective. That's a different matter. And then, of course, if you're saying we're going to eliminate the income tax, you've got to expect that the retired people in the state of Mississippi are going to say, hey, what about us? We're not subject to state income tax now in terms of our households that uh, primarily receive their income from retirement sources which are exempt from state income tax. What about us? That came up the last time, right? Especially when the original plan offered by the House, proposed by the House, included elimination of the income tax offset by increase of sales taxes. And the retired population in our state says, wow, that would make my household expenses, my tax burden increase because I'm presently not paying state income tax. I would get no relief there. I would, however, incur additional taxes on uh, consumption because of increasing the sales tax. It depends on what you buy because a lot of stuff that households buy is not subject to sales tax. We've been over that. I would argue that most retirement households spend their money in ways that is not subject to to in, uh, pardon me, sales tax. So that's it's a serious question, though. And then I've seen some candidates say, no, we're going to eliminate the income tax and we're going to reduce sales tax on groceries, if not eliminate it, which would mean another $440 million a year of revenue the state would lose. And that's, of course, 18.2% of that gets diverted to municipalities. The state would not only lose the revenue, they'd have to figure out some way to dig into the pot to reimburse the municipalities for that loss of revenue that is diverted to them from sales taxes presently on grocery sales. Many communities, that's their primary source of income, or sales tax on groceries, because that's what most people buy in, in some small towns in the state. So th- these are just, I guess, more involved, complicated questions than just saying, yeah, I'm going to eliminate the income tax, which I fully support. But plans, nuance, systems, structure, models, those are all important. Those have to be considered. And I think anybody serious about that, regardless of what office they're running for in the state, if you're running for House or Senate, and that's uh, something you want to do, I would submit that you need to be able to answer those questions over what period of time immediately phase in targets to phase it in uh, spending cuts is offset any other tax increases is offset are you proposing you know tell us specifically how your plan would be implemented that's important ben from madison says weird to me the candidates are arguing about something that has nothing to do with the issues facing mississippi I'd like to hear more from them about what they plan to do the next four years rather than what happened in the 70s. And I think Ben's referring to this, I guess, this much slinging over the lieutenant governor serving as an officer in a clinic that uh, performed abortions. And whether or not the dates correspond where he was uh, an officer in that organization, correspond with when this 
clinic was performing abortions. Uh, I agree with you, Ben. I, I'd like to hear more about that as well. Marjorie Taylor Greene sure had a lot of X-rated pics from a laptop that is supposedly missing, didn't she? <laughs> says Karen in Oxford. Yeah. Mailman Clayton says Bidenomics doesn't equal Reaganomics. Yeah, that's pretty clear. How's the Biden administration going to handle the identity of the IRS whistleblower on the ceasefire text line? We talked about that yesterday. Like, are they going to, can they, they can't claim homophobia, right, from this person because they happen to be a gay man. They announced so. They declared that, made that very clear. Doesn't really care, does this whistleblower. I got to respect the person for that. We're coming right back. We're looking for Richard Cross up in Nashville. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbs. What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. There you go, the great Jerry Lee Lewis bumping us into this segment here on Middays. We're back with you in the Element Wealth Studio. Gary in Meridian sent a photo of a shirt, says, I found your shirt. He, he heard me talking about working in the yard. It's like 15 minutes of work, and then you have to sit down and rest. It says, back and body hurts across the front of the T-shirt. I get it. Uh, yeah, I need that. That's a good one there, Gary. I think David Allen Cole needs to be uh, needs to break out some new music, says Adam and Baldwin. On the ceasefire text line, Gerard, would you trust PERS enough to stay working for them if you were only halfway to retirement, or do you cut bait and go private sector? Thanks, concerned government employee. I do not believe that the state of Mississippi will allow PERS to fail. I just put it that way. I think that it clearly needs some financial reform, just like Social Security and Medicare do. Uh, they're on the same trajectory of uh, reaching a point of not being able to make full payments of benefits, and reform is definitely necessary. It's just politically toxic. Nobody wants to talk about it because there's going to cause a little pain. There, there are lots of different approaches to uh, address the financial challenges of PERS. But like I've said so many times, and this could take many shapes and forms, don't get me wrong, but you either got to have more coming in, less going out, or a combination of the two. Now, again, that could come in many forms. That doesn't mean, hey, we're just going to raise the contribution rate today and or decrease benefits going out today. No, it just means that some way, somehow, you've you got to get more revenue uh, or less going out or a combination of the two long-term to stabilize the program. The same is true for Social Security and Medicare. Same is true. Now, I did read a very comprehensive and somewhat complex plan over the weekend on how to address Social Security shortfall. And I'll try to summarize it for you. It basically says that uh, we would convert to a defined 
contribution plan and that you would contribute 10%. It's currently 6.5%, 10% of your income, those in certain age groups, not talking about changing anything for those presently retired or those within a certain number of years uh, of retirement, but you, you look at the younger population currently paying in that's a fair number of years away from retiring, you'd pay in to this sort of personal plan, kind of like a 401k plan, and then at like age 60, you'd start, as you approach retirement, by the way, which under this plan, you'd be eligible at 70, so that would increase the retirement age from what it presently is. You're... Um, your contributions stored in that account, earmarked to you, would begin to uh, convert and invest in inflation-adjusted treasuries at a, roughly a tenth per year over 10 years until you retire, and then you receive the annuity on those accounts for however long they're able to pay you that. That, to me, suggests that the benefit would be decreased. But it's just a plan. That's that's one way to address the issue. And all the money that has been contributed to this point for that group of people, some age group and below, would um, would would just convert into this treasury, uh, inflation-adjusted treasury. Treasury, there's certain treasury bills you can buy from the federal government that are protected from inflation, and they they actually change in value based on inflation. So it's an interesting uh, interesting plan, but yeah. So my answer would be: I don't think you you've got a risk of purse failing. I don't. I think that our government is going to address it. You're just not going to hear a lot about it in an election year. Though I committed to this audience, I would ask every candidate about it, and I have. I've been steadfast to that commitment, and we will next week at the fair. I don't expect a lot of substance in the answers there. Uh, it's just not, you're not going to get that. Yep, this is exactly what we got to do. No, you won't hear that. I think what you'll likely hear is, yeah, we're aware that's an issue. And we're, we got to address it, and we're going to have to get together and talk about it. I think that something to that effect. You kind of agree, Rhino? That's, that's likely what we're going to get. I think we should form a committee to study that. Right, exactly. That's always the, the, oh, yeah. the default there. So, Hey, Gerard, I'd love to hear... The lieutenant governor candidates plan on improving the state's workforce participation rate. It's currently horrible and something I haven't heard the candidates nor any politician address. What would be the specific plan to address this? What would be a reasonable improvement? I I can tell you that I've had private conversations with the lieutenant governor about this. He does monitor that very closely. It is true that we have a terrible um, labor participation rate. If if I'm not mistaken, Ryan, it it may be the lowest in the country. It's pretty close to that. And it's certainly below the national labor participation rate. And that's just the people who can work, the percentage of them that are actually out working or looking for work. Yeah, it's a, it's a problem. And, I, and we, we've got a, a, a propped-up population, it seems, that just doesn't seem to be interested in really uh, getting out working. I think some of that is a function of just the aging of our population in our state and the continuous loss of our young workers, especially those who graduate from our fine colleges and universities that discuss that many, many times, the so-called brain drain. Yeah, you don't hear a lot, a lot of talk about that. 
what I personally believe is the solution of that is to um, to grow the economy and to, and to uh, see investment in new business, expansion of existing business, investment of new business, new economic development projects uh, coming to fruition in our state. And this, I think, is incumbent upon all our state leaders, especially the statewide leaders and our Washington delegation, to be uh, to play an active role in recruiting business into our state so that we can keep these people that seek work for what they've been trained for in our colleges that we're paying a fair amount for, only to unfortunately lose them to the other states upon graduation. It's definitely a problem, and it's it's the way to address all of our other pressing issues, health care, education, just overall quality of life, household incomes. We all benefit from economic growth and expansion. It, pro-growth policies is what we want to hear, and I think in, in terms of the state of Mississippi, that uh, really entails telling our story selling our state, attracting industry and investment into our state. The governor seems to be more focused, in my view, on that than any other statewide leader. I would also submit that's probably more of his responsibility, uh, maybe, than the others. And I think he's he's taken up that role and, and done a pretty good job. He he certainly promotes it, and he, and he discusses that more than most candidates, if not all candidates, and and he uh, he highlights uh, economic wins across our state when that happens. That's almost on a daily basis. So that's good news. I think we're seeing a bit of a trend, a trajectory there, and I hope that continues. But that's how we do it. Is we we've got to keep our young people here, and we but we got to have a place for them to work. And that's how I think we increase our our labor force participation rate. All right, Gerard, help me out on the on the constitutional amendment issue. I think you're talking about the ballot initiative. The Senate and Lieutenant Governor proposed 12 percent and the House 10 percent. Who's the leadership team that needs to bridge the gap? Seems that both passed the buck. I'm wondering why do they hate each other, Gunn and Hoseman? No, I don't think they, they hate each other. I think that's a bit of a stretch. Uh, someone did say earlier... I'm looking forward here, uh, Rhino, also asking about the um, the ballot initiative process. Um, they, were, they were curious as to where the candidates stood on that. And so just explain, and I know we've been through this before, but I think it's worth revisiting, the, the difference between the, the bills proposed by the House and Senate on the ballot initiative process. The House wanted to keep the signature threshold intact as it presently stands. At ten percent of ten uh, percent of voters, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and no, that who who pardon me, twelve percent of who voted in the last gubernatorial election. That ring a bell to you, Rhino? That's that's what I understand. And then what the what the Senate proposed was a much higher threshold, and I think it was a percent of all voters. So the House said all who voted in the, pre, in the most uh, previous, most recent gov, uh, governor's election, and the Senate said no, all voters, all registered voters. And that's how you ended up with a delta of about 45,000 or so more signatures you'd have to collect under the Senate's plan. That's the main point there. The Senate's plan uh, wanted more signatures to get a, a ballot certified, an initiative, I should say, cert- certified for the ballot. So. 
We're coming right back with more on uh, middays in the Element Well studio. We got Richard Cross coming up next. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Oh, mama, I can hear you crying. You're so scared and all alone. Hangman is coming down from the gallows and I don't have very long. Welcome back, everyone, to Midday Super Talk Mississippi from the Element Well Studio. Joining us now, Richard Cross, the host of Sports Talk Mississippi. He's up there in Nashville for SEC Media Days. What's happening there, Richard? Gerard, everything's good. I'm sorry that uh, I, I think we were supposed to visit a little bit earlier today. And the, the fact is, I was curled up in a ball and I was in mourning. Uh, I was convinced that I was going to be the winner of the $1 billion Powerball last <laughs> night. I, and I'm calling shenanigans. I mean, come on now. They say the odds of, or, you know, what, like 1 in 287 million or right. something like that. And yet, the winning ticket was sold 13 miles from the last big winning ticket out on the West Coast. This Angeles. whole thing is rigged. And uh, so, yeah. Um, I, I still would have had a great con- I would have loved to have had a conversation with you. I, I would have been pretty loose, though, I think, if I had been the winner. <laughs> I'm surprised you'd even be willing to engage in a conversation if you were the winner. I think I'd be out of there, huh? <laughs> I'd hung with it for a little while. I love what I do for a living. I, hear um, you. I just it wouldn't have. Uh, there would be very little stress in my I, hear I would you. like to think that's the case anyway. Just one uh, last no, thing to day. worry about. Yeah. So I, I hear a lot of chatter in the background there. I, I think you guys are right in the thick of it. Of course, we talked to your colleague Brian Haydad uh, a couple of days ago. What's the latest? Ole Miss is here today. Yeah. Uh, you had Mississippi State uh, here. I think when you guys visited with Haydad on uh, on Tuesday. There he is creeping in. It's uh, it's about that's about right for him. Creep is a good way to describe it. Um, no, we uh, it's been a fun day. Lane Kiffin has been probably the most engaging coach that we've had over the course of the the four days at Media Days. He was loose, and, and the funny thing is, like like there are these two different Lane Kiffins, right? There, there's one on one. I did an interview with him this morning, and and he was good. But it's like when he gets in that big room and there are a couple of hundred folks out there and the TV cameras are rolling and he knows there's a national TV audience, he, he turns it on a little bit. And uh, and he did that today. He was funny. He was engaging. Uh, he took responsibility for the way the season ended last year, or at least took partial responsibility for the, the way the season ended last year, not having the team focused and playing to the standard following the Alabama game that, that they wanted to play to. Um, he took some shots at some people. He talked very, very openly about NIL, name, image, and likeness. From yeah. the very beginning of this whole pay and players thing, he has called it what it is. He's called it free agency. Uh, he's called it, uh, you know, paying players, salaries, salary caps. He's used all these words 
that other coaches have not been willing to use. They've, they've kind of shied away from that. They've talked around the edges of it. He has attacked it head on, and, and we'll have a bunch of those comments for, for our listeners on Sports Talk Mississippi this afternoon. Um, but it was Elaine Kiffin that, that looked pretty at ease. Well, he's not alone in his sentiments about NIL, though, is he, Richard? I mean, he, he's certainly not unique in that regard. No, no, not at all. I think they all believe the same thing, but there aren't a lot of people that are, are willing to talk about it as openly or as forwardly as uh, as he does. One of the things that, that he said today that I thought really stood out, um, he, he told, he, he said, I have told our players and parents of our players that right now is the best time ever to be a player in college athletics. And he said, this isn't going to last forever. At some point, we're going to get... Uh, some guardrails, some supervision, some oversight on what can happen in NIL. He said, but if you play your cards right right now as a player, you can get three paydays. You can get paid coming out of high school if you are a, a valuable enough re- recruit. You have a free one-time transfer, and so you can either threaten to transfer and get paid to not leave, or you can actually transfer and get paid by another school. And then if you graduate with eligibility remaining – you can leverage that for one more payday. Yeah. And so you can get new contracts, and it's all about leverage. But yeah. but then he talked about the other side of it and, and locker room dynamics where you know, you're know you sitting there and, and you've got a contract with a collective and you're being paid a certain amount, and then somebody else comes in after you and they get paid more, and he said you know, you'll have guys that are, are, are frustrated or disappointed. And I'll tell them, this is life. It's about leverage and it's about timing. And the new guy had leverage, and his timing was better than yours. So, you know, play on the deal that you've got, and if you want more money, then be better. Yeah. How Are you hearing anything, Richard, from the coaches talking about how their just approach and strategy in the recruiting process has changed? Because, you know, I've had these sort of private conversations with uh, some of my alma mater's coaches, and it's the conversation's more about we got to make sure we get enough money so that we can get these particular players. I mean, that's just changed the yeah. game considerably. Well, it absolutely has. And he says it's the number one question we're recruiting. You know, what's the, <laughs> what's the salary going to be? And, and he, you know, he says you might look and be, you see a kid that, that goes off somewhere where on the surface it doesn't make them sense going to school. He's like, well, they got a better salary to go to that school, <laughs> uh, you know, school A than they did school B. And, and so, uh, again, really candid about it. You know, Walker Jones was on with us on Sports Talk Mississippi last week. Yeah. And he's the director of the Grove Collective. Right. And, he and and the Grove Collective have teamed up with six other collectives, and that number is growing. And, yep. and it's kind of interesting bedfellows, right? So it's from the SEC, Ole Miss, and Tennessee, and Georgia. And then you got Florida State out of the ACC, and Michigan from the Big Ten, and Southern Cal out on the West Coast. And they are all saying, we want the same thing. We, we need some um, – th- th- there needs to be some guidelines that are put in place. Uh, Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, talked earlier this week about the fact that the, some of the, the, the patchwork of state laws with these state legislatures is like a race to the bottom. You know, who can who can have the, the, the slimiest, sleaziest laws that allow their school to have an advantage over a school in a neighboring state or another school uh, w- within their own conference? And he said, so I, I think the difference in what this collective collective is talking about and what Greg Sankey has talked about is they recognize that if there is a national solution that yeah. comes from Congress, um, that, that there's some things that are in play. 
um, Title IX regulations are very much in play. Uh, mm-hmm. A solution that is not what schools want it to be is in play. Um, I talked with Greg Sankey yesterday about this because he used the statement that he said this is a nonpartisan issue that needs a nonpartisan solution. And I said, I, I hear what you're saying on that, but the problem is the people that are co- going to come up with that solution, if it happens at the congressional level, they're very much partisan. Yeah. And, and so I don't know that you're going to end up with a nonpartisan solution. So leaders in college sports largely are saying we need congressional help. We need a national standard. Uh, these This kind of group of collectives that has come, has come together said, no, we need multiple conferences to agree these are the standards and then come up with a way to enforce those where you've kind of got them across the board. I don't know. It all feels a little pie in the sky to me. Yeah. Uh, it's just amazing to me, Richard. Honestly, it's a bit surreal that this is taking all the air out of the room, that this is what we're talking about, because it, it, it is an important issue, and it is dominating, I think, the landscape of college athletics, particularly college football, where the money's really getting crazy out there. But yeah. it, it seems like we've just sort of shifted away from talking about coaching styles and athletes and, and offensive systems and who stacks up and to, to looking like they're going to compete for championships and so forth. And there is nobody that hates that shift in conversation more than my radio co-host, Brian Haydad. <laughs> I mean, NIL comes up, conference realignment comes up, and it like it's like he just wants to lean over and just bang his head on the table and, and then, like, check out altogether. Am I right? Am I true? See? There, he, he tells you. He, he tells you. I am fascinated with the business of sports, and so there is a level of fascination there for me. But I'm kind of weary of, weary of it myself, Gerard. I mean, I, I'd love for us to get to a point where we are back talking more about games, and you know, we try to balance that. And yeah, sure. On the field this fall, I, I think it's a fascinating year in the state of Mississippi. You know, you, you look at Ole Miss with Quinshawn Judkins returning, uh, set an SEC freshman rushing record a year ago. Ole Miss has got an experienced quarterback room, forty new players that wow. are on scholarship this year. And they picked up like 22 or 23 in the transfer portal. And then when you look down the road to Starkville, I mean, you get Will Rogers, who has set all kinds of records. Yeah. Uh, you know, a new head coach in Zach Arnett, a defense that should be pretty good with some returning pieces. Um, and yet when we, when we later today, early tomorrow, get the, the preseason predicted of order of finish, um, to the chagrin of Mississippi State fans, they're probably going to be picked sixth in the West and likely will finish higher than that. And Ole Miss probably going to be picked third or fourth in the West, and, and we'll see where they finish. So it is uh, it is a fun time as we get close. Yeah, and we're getting close, and I guess it all happens on the field, as they say. But right now, uh, no doubt, we're talking a lot about this whole NIL thing and, and just what was a few years ago uh, a, a very uh, brazen and um, highly punishing infraction is now the word of the day. It's crazy. That's right. Word of the day. <laughs> Six weeks from Saturday, we got football in the Magnolia State. <laughs> Richard, appreciate the great job you guys do up there, and uh, thanks for calling in and giving us an update from Nashville, site of SEC Media Days. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studio. Appreciate it, Richard. Thanks, Gerard.
three. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays. We're in the Element Well studio. I want to give a shout-out to Chris Butts. He is uh, on the road today with Representative Fred Shanks. Just received a text from him. A big fan of the show. Appreciate that, Chris. Thank you for tuning in. So I wanted to uh, once again review the ballot measure process in Mississippi. Uh, unfortunately, I made some mistakes there, and I want to correct those, and I want to set the record straight. I was trying to recall all those numbers from memory. Hadn't talked about that in a while. Ben from Madison, of course, was kind enough to text in about uh, that issue. It's something he's talked about quite a bit, as as have many others on our text line. But I just want to clarify that uh, so our audience knows where the various proposals stood. So under present law, which has essentially been nullified, by the Supreme Court of Mississippi. You're probably familiar with that case concerning Initiative 65. That was the medical cannabis measure that went to the ballot, got voted on, got approved. But uh, then a case was filed that where the plaintiff said that the signature collection process was really invalid based on uh, the way it is specified prescribed in our law. So under present law, okay, 12% of the total number of votes cast for the governor, the governor in the last gubernatorial election are required to validate a measure. Got to have 12%. Now, according to the Secretary of State's website, that presently is 107,216 signatures. What the Senate proposed, the state Senate, they, this, so the House proposed a bill that would have reinstated the ballot measure process. However, rather than, rather than um, a measure amending the state constitution, it would establish state statute. Different. But it did call for, provide for the same number of signatures, same exact process as is currently in law in Mississippi. That would be 12% of the total votes cast in the last gubernatorial election. What the Senate wanted, alternatively, was a higher signature requirement that calculated as 12% of the total qualified electors in the state. And that computes to roughly 240,000 signatures. So I said 40,000. It's 140, roughly 140,000 more 
Um, I knew the number 40,000 was in there somewhere. but So I apologize for not having all those details in front of me uh, a couple of segments ago before we talked to Richard. But I just wanted to clarify that and explain. So under the House version, 107,000 signatures consistent with present law. Under the Senate version, 240,000 signatures, a much higher threshold. Now, I know that it's common for those supporting... Lieutenant, uh, pardon me, Senator Chris McDaniel, to attribute the lack of getting legislation passed to reinstate the ballot measure process to Lieutenant Governor Hoseman. But, and, and it's true that he supports a higher threshold. We talked to him about that, Rhino, you remember, on the show. And we disagreed with his position on that because his rationale was, well, this would prevent large, out-of-state, well-funded interest from essentially controlling the legislative agenda through ballot initiative process in Mississippi by having a higher signature threshold. You and I, I think, both agreed that it's quite the opposite, that it would be much more difficult for grassroots uh, organizations in the state of Mississippi to hit that target because it does take a well-organized effort and a lot of money to traverse the state and collect 240,000 signatures. Yeah, an organization out of state that would have an interest in that, such as recreational marijuana, maybe they stand to make some money off that. That would be, I believe, one of the first things that would get to the ballot and pass in Mississippi. That's my belief. But the higher signature threshold pretty much relegates it to only the well-organized, the machines that are accustomed to doing this in other states that have money that want to see something become law in Mississippi. I should also point out that Senator John Pope from Hattiesburg, he chairs the Accountability, Efficiency, and Transparency Committee, which was taking up this legislation. He actually opposes the ballot measure process altogether. He, uh, he basically said that the, uh, uh, he says, I have, uh, let's see if I can find it here. He basically said that we should rely on our elected leaders to make law and that he didn't really think that a ballot initiative process is, is necessary. He, he, made that, he made that very clear. Hmm. So I just wanted to pass that on. There there's some others that have concerns about it as well, I think, in the Senate, beyond just the lieutenant governor. But hopefully that clarifies things. I think we're going to ask them all about where they stand on this. We're coming right back with more. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. We've got Michael Morris, director of two museums, in next. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone, to Middays Live from the Element Wealth Studio on this Friday Eve. Joining us now, Michael Morris, director of two Mississippi museums. Michael, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Gilbert. So tell me about your background. You worked for the Mississippi Department of Archives and History for yes, a while, right? And absolutely. And you assumed this position how long ago? 
Um, I actually don't start my new position as the director of the museums until August 1. Okay, okay. But I've worked at the Department of Archives and History for seven years. So I started there in 2016, about a year, maybe 12 months and so, uh, before the museums opened. Okay. And I worked in our public relations office, and a um, large part of my job for the last seven years has been advertising these museums and marketing them and yeah. making sure we're getting the word out about them. Yeah. So you are succeeding Pamela Jr., correct? Yeah. It kind of sounds crazy when you say it out loud, but that's actually what I'm doing. She yeah. did a, such a phenomenal job as yeah. the director for the last five years. Well, it is uh, certainly a tremendous asset for the state of Mississippi. They the really two, are. two Mississippi museums are. We've, As you know, we broadcast the show from there, and, and I have I've toured it a few yes. times. And every time I think I see something new, because there's so much uh, curated in the museum there. Absolutely. I mean, in the Museum of Mississippi History alone, I think yeah. there are more than like 15,000 artifacts in it. Wow. And, um, you know, there are hundreds of artifacts in our Civil Rights Museum. And so... Um, I'm excited about this position and the opportunity to get to tell folks about, like you said, these two great assets that we have right there in downtown Jackson. You know, and I'll share this. The last time I was broadcasting there uh, during a break, a couple approached me and said they were from Michigan. Hmm. And uh, they they came into Mississippi. They retired, and they came to Mississippi to, to tour the state. Also said they listened to the show uh, remotely, hmm. which kind of shocked me. Um, and they heard that we were on and, and wanted to tour it. Had never been through it, and uh-huh. then they came out on the other side yeah. uh, right before we went off the air, and they were just blown away as everybody wow. else that go through it. Yeah, it's yeah, world that's class. Absolutely isn't it? true. I mean, I tell folks these are Smithsonian caliber museums no that doubt. we have here. And um, I, in fact, I can remember before the museums opened, I was trying to explain that to my sister who lives in D.C. and uh, you know she really didn't understand what I was trying to say until she actually stepped foot in there. And she was blown away, um, in particular, our Civil Rights Museum. She was um, left in tears just by the emotional impact that she felt looking at the exhibits. And I think what really impacted her was by the time she got to Gallery 7 and she saw the parts to the truck of Dennis Damer, of mm-hmm. Vernon Damer, mm-hmm. um, and just learning the, his story and um, his fight for voting rights. Um, it really did leave an impression on her. Um, and that large photograph of his sons standing over the ruins of his house that had been firebombed. Um, I think she left just wanting to tell everybody about the fact that if they look at anything in our museum, they need to go and see that particular exhibit. Interesting. Well, um, you know, so, some of the the artifacts that, especially photos that show some of the early schools mm. in the state, yes, or seem to stick with me. I'm not sure why, but it, it's just you look at the the contrast of today yeah. versus that, right? Uh, and, which I think tells a bit of a story that that I hope people get when they tour the museum and the, and they exit. That there's no doubt that we we had difficult times, we had dark times right. in our history. We have to acknowledge that, recognize that, learn from that. Mm-hmm. But we've come a long way, and, we have. and we've got to celebrate our successes as well. Absolutely, in absolutely. And I think you're talking about the schoolhouse exhibit with photographs, yeah. from like the mid 1950s, yes, a black school, white school in yes. the same county. Exactly. And it's a great story behind that. Um, a couple of our archivists um, on the second floor of the William Winter Building um, at Archives and History found those photographs by accident. Okay. And um, she showed them to the museum curator, and the next thing you know, they came up with that whole exhibit off the fly um, by the fact that, you know, our archivists would just happen to be rummaging through, the I think it was the state auditor's papers where they found these photographs. And so um, 
I think those photographs really do tell a story about, like you said, how far we've come. And, um, you know, I think um, this past year, you know, we've put more money in education than ever before. I mean, we really have come a long ways. Yeah, and, and of course, our, our results are are really getting national attention. Mm-hmm. The the progress we've made there, the yes. governor's made a good point to point uh, to tout that. I, I think, but uh, I've shared the um, story written in the New York Times, where a reporter came to Mississippi, mm-hmm. went to the Jackson Public School System, and and witnessed for himself, and, mm-hmm. and then wrote about that. Just well, I always said, you know, Mississippi is is a template, honestly, mm-hmm. for the rest of the nation, and, and how to educate our children in the mm-hmm. public schools. So, yeah. um, any particular exhibits that uh, you find particularly Im- impressive that kind of kind of stick with you that are your favorites? You would you say? Well, I would say, um, you know. Uh, Whenever I walk into Gallery One of the Museum of Mississippi History, there's a um, a 500 year old canoe. Um, it's one of the first things that you see. It's called the Swan Lake Canoe, and it was found by the Army Corps of Engineers back in 1990. And um, it's so long; it's like 25 feet long and impressive. And you can really see the ingenuity and the genius of the five hundred years. Yeah, and this was made by Native Americans, um, and you can see how they chiseled it and really perfected it and made it usable to be able to um, flow down rivers because that was that was a means of transportation back sure. back in those days. And so um, I think that's really impressive. But um, right now we have on display um, as a special exhibit um, it's a Smithsonian traveling exhibit about the. Um, People's campaign um, that happened in 1968 here. It's called Solidarity Now. And basically what happens is um, they led a march that started right here in Mississippi, in March, Mississippi, that went all the way to the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And basically they were protesting uh, poverty. Um, not just in Mississippi, but throughout the nation. Yeah. Um, and then exhibit is going to be up through September. But I encourage anybody to come and see it. Like I said, it's a Smithsonian exhibit. And anytime you can get something that's Smithsonian caliber um, here in Mississippi, it's an opportunity to, to see something great. Well, that's a good way to describe it. I've been in both, and I would agree with you. Yes. I think I think it is on par with the Smithsonian. Yes. Of course, it's focused on Mississippi. Absolutely. Smithsonian is, is broader in scope. But as far as learning the history of Mississippi yes. and certainly learning about the fight for civil rights and I think it's fair to say Mississippi was ground zero in that effort. Absolutely. And um that's what I tell folks about our museums. You're not gonna see a whole lot about Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. That's right. Um it's about the ordinary Mississippians that made it happen here. And that's the proudest that's the thing I'm proudest about our museums. You're gonna go in there and learn about people you never heard of. Uh, Vera May Pidgey from Clarksdale, Mississippi, who worked alongside Aaron Henry. Or if we go down to Hattiesburg and we talk about Vernon Damer, who I mentioned earlier. Or if we talk about um, the fact that James Meredith was right here in Jackson and at one time attended Jackson State University before he integrated the University of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. All of these stories are about everyday, average, ordinary Mississippians that decided to step up in the face of danger, in the face of uh uh, losing their limbs and et cetera, in, in the face of their families losing their jobs, um, to make this state, to make this country a better place. Yeah. And, um, we, you know, these museums are actually about celebrating that. Um, not just the black struggle, but also the struggle for Native Americans in this country to, um, achieve their rights. And, um, I really do think that if you want to know more about America, you need to come to Mississippi. 
Hmm. Um, if you want to know about the civil rights movement and the ordinary people that made it happen, you need to come to Mississippi and learn about Fannie Lou Hamer and et cetera. So. Do you feel like those who have, have come to Mississippi, haven't been here, not familiar with our history, toured the Civil Rights Museum, do you feel like they come away with a positive impression of our state? I, I hope so. Um, the way that I interpret our museum is to look at it as a victory. You know, when you come out of that final gallery and you see all of those black elected officials, I believe Mississippi still has the highest number of black elected officials. In I the think country. that's right. You talk about school boards, mayors, aldermen, city councils, and et cetera. That's an achievement. That's something to brag about. Mm-hmm. That's something that you can't say about a lot of states that are similarly situated to us. And it's because, like I said, of this grassroots struggle. Um, that these ordinary folks engaged in that left the lasting impact generation after generation. I think we've got one of the largest black caucuses uh, in the country as well for that same reason. I think region. that's true. Well, I mean, blacks, as, uh, as they represent our overall population, I, I think we have the highest percent of any yeah. state in the nation. I've always thought that we may have more racial harmony, honestly, in this right. state than in any other, and I think we were sort of forced into that because of the the small gap between the the, uh, the races that comprise our population. We had to figure out how to live with each other. We, I don't know that we'd have made it, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people go in and they're um, taken aback by the tragedies that they yeah. see and et cetera. Yeah. But like I said, I hope that when they get to that final gallery, they see that those tragedies happen for a reason. I agree. And there was a struggle for these achievements that we see today. Yeah. So. Michael, is fascinating, and it is a, a, a fantastic and fabulous asset for the great state of Mississippi. Congratulations on your new role there. Thank and you I'm so sure much. We'll be talking to you soon. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you, Gibber, for having me on. You got it. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well Studio. the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio, the car. Bumping us into this segment, that would be Rick Ocasek. <laughs> well, I appreciate uh, Mr. Marsh for coming in, and we wish him well in his new endeavor, serving as the director of two, it's two Mississippi museums. Somebody asked. It's the Civil Rights and Mississippi Museum of History, and they're together, essentially, at the same facility, downtown Jackson. And it is really something that everybody needs to tour, just as the Armed Forces, Mississippi Armed Forces Museum that we have done several remotes at, down um, at uh, Camp Shelby, uh, just south of Hattiesburg, Mississippi there, Forest County. So, yeah, it, it's it's worth it to tour it. And I, I think you'll, you'll see some things and you'll learn some things about our history that you probably didn't know. Uh, it is cool. I didn't know about the the um, 
500-year-old canoe? How something is that, man? That's just crazy. 500. But when you think about who inhabited our state long before we got here, he's right. That's how we got around. That's how they got around. And it is fascinating to think that so long ago they were able to create um, an apparatus like that with such precision that would be seaworthy, honestly. Well, I mean, it goes back to something I've said many, many times, is people have been people as long as people have been people. Good and point. We, we tend to forget that. That's a good point. I totally agree. People had the same needs. They they got hungry. They got tired. They needed a place to sleep. They needed a way to get around. They fell in love. They fell out of love. You're right. They mourned. They experienced joy. I mean, they people have been people as long as people have been people. You're right. It's pretty cool. But we have a lot to be proud of in our state, and and though we should certainly always recognize, this is where I quarrel with the left. Yeah, we we we're not looking to expunge and cancel and suppress this history. They want you to believe that we do. I don't know anybody that's ever said that on the right. We just don't want it shoved down our throats, and we want the balance to include with that the good. There's lots of great success stories, victories that we have achieved as a society. It's hard to drive the car when you're focused on the rearview mirror. Very true. It's, it's, uh, it's an old adage, but it's absolutely fact, and it's true. And, and so what's wrong with balance? Just balance. Uh, you, you think about in the classroom, for example, children certainly need to be taught our history, but they don't need to be taught, in my view, only the negative parts of our history. And and they certainly don't need to be taught that this country is divided into the oppressors and the oppressed. They don't need to be taught that it's just inherently evil and wicked and and uh, rooted in all sorts of um, negative action. And negative history, they don't they don't need to just be indoctrinated into that, which is what they seem to want to do. And it and they've got, of course, some nefarious agenda driving that. There's no doubt about that in my view. So sure. Um, review is part of history. These events in history, these 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 key aspects of our history, even if they're they're negative, even if they're stains on our past, absolutely. But you've also got to highlight, hold, um, hold up, and and uh, convey all the, the the positive aspects of uh, this country and our state, and there are numerous. I, I've got to say it again. I remember watching the debate at the House a couple of years ago. I was in the gallery at the State House talking about the very simple bill that would just prohibit teaching in the classroom that. One one race is superior to another, pretty much limited at that. And we had members of our legislature standing up and saying, oh, well, that means that children aren't going to learn about... They said Jackie Robinson, one of them said that. I, I remember that distinctly and, and pointed to the room in the Capitol that's downstairs that holds a lot of our historical documents that chronicle our state. They're not going to learn that. Nobody said that. <laughs> Nobody is advocating for that. We just don't want you to teach that one school child is superior to another. 
or inferior. I, I can't imagine why anyone would object to that. And they kind of hijacked it, don't you feel like, right? It was just hijacked it for personal, political gain. Look at me. I'm, well, they got to have something to put on those push cards they <laughs> mail out to get elected. Uh, they don't do a whole lot of anything else. It's so crazy, though, man. I, I just uh, I object to that. Uh, on the ceasefire text line, Thomas Tupelo says, when, when I was talking about PERS earlier, he says that the, the legislative, the, uh, the SLURP program, that's the program that it's an additional retirement, supplemental legislative retirement program, should be dissolved. You know, I don't really have a problem with the program. They pay into it. The taxpayers pay into it. It's a small amount of money. I, I mean, it's, it's what's the objection there? Uh, it just seems like that we all want to pound the flesh over uh, out of our elected officials. I, I don't see how that improves society, honestly says our neighboring states – I asked, do you believe elected leaders should receive no compensation? He said our neighboring states don't. We're the poorest state in the nation, in the nation yet we have an aristocracy. That's not true, uh, Thomas. Uh, the, all the other states, our neighboring states, do in fact pay their legislators. Louisiana pays theirs less than we do, but Alabama, Arkansas, Tennessee all pay fair amount more than we do, as a matter of fact. I don't really care. It's such a small amount of money. Tennessee is a little bit more. Arkansas, I found, was considerably uh, greater in their legislative pay, almost double. And then uh, Alabama as well was um, at 53,956. We pay ours 23,500, so almost double there. That's, I just see, see that as, as a uh, kind of a non issue. Jason says, funny how states with absolutely nothing but white people have loaded up their local natives onto third world reservations and then call Mississippi racist. I think that's just a, a, a lack of understanding of Mississippi. I hear you. That's Jason Flagstaff. And uh, I've, I've um, encountered some of those sentiments and, and perceptions as well. They're really misconceptions about our state. It's because they haven't been here. They don't know. And unfortunately, I think it's... It's fair to say, Rhino, to a great extent, they've been influenced by Hollywood. Hollywood loves to portray Mississippi in a stereotypical fashion. Well, Hollywood loves to lie. I mean, it's their entire profession. They are good at lying and making you believe the lie so that you become emotionally attached to the lie. It seems like it. That's why I can't take the, the strike seriously. Oh, you got to pay the writers. Do you know what the median income for a writer in Hollywood is? If they work 34 weeks out of the year, they take home 250 grand. Right. It's, it's 7000 plus a week minimum. That, I saw that as well, and they're bellyaching about it. Um, yeah, it's, it is hard to take it seriously. So I'm not going to feel sorry for people taking home seven grand a week minimum pay. Yeah, it's crazy. And that's just the writers. That doesn't include the actors that are bellyaching about it, and they're making millions to lie to you as a profession. That's true. So uh, we were talking about the ballot initiative process earlier, and uh, tried to unravel that and explain the uh, the facts around that particular issue and and really just the big gap between the the state house and the state senate what they could live with to reinstate 
the citizen ballot measure mechanism, and it comes down to signatures. That was the primary area of conflict, and the House wanted to keep that at the present level, the present requirement of 12% of the votes cast in the most recent gubernatorial election. The Senate wanted 12% essentially of registered voters. There's about 140,000 signature delta there, 107,000 in the House version, 240,000 roughly in the uh, Senate version. And that's what kept it from becoming law. We, we see that listed as a high priority for many candidates running, uh, certainly those challenging incumbents. I think you would. it's fair to say that they are really uh, promoting that as a high priority because they feel like the incumbent didn't get that done. That makes sense. And it is certainly one area of, uh, of difference between Senator McDaniel, Lieutenant Governor Hoseman. The Lieutenant Governor hasn't come out and, and just explicitly stated, I oppose a ballot initiative process. He just said, I want more signatures. I disagree with him on that front, honestly. Uh, and and then, like I said earlier, the, um, the, the Senate chair of the Accountability and Transparency, Efficiency and Transparency Committee, John Polk, he said, we have a representative form of government that has worked for a long time, and I know of no senator who will not accept constituents' calls, emails, or visits if they have an issue. I'll continue this on the other side of the break. Stay with us. Shine a star for you to see what your life can truly be. Shine a star for you to see what your life can truly be. Bring it on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well studio, we appreciate you being with us today. So just continuing on what Senator Polk said about the ballot initiative process, I'm bringing that up because I don't think it's accurate to just pin on one person, that being the lieutenant governor, the fact that we don't have a ballot measure process in the state. Again, it is true. And that's in conversations I've had with him privately and, and in discussions with him here on the program that he does support a higher signature bar requirement in order for a measure to be certified to get on the ballot for the people to vote on. And that's really to address issues that the legislature, they feel like, is not handling on their behalf. But Senator Polk says, I'll read it again, we have a representative form of government that has worked for a long time, and I know of no senator who will not accept constituents' calls, emails, or visits if they have an issue we need to deal with. I believe in our representative form of government, and voters every four years have the opportunity to change who represents them. He's right. I mean, that's the case. Uh, I guess I would ask of our audience, what is it you want to get to the ballot? I, I, I understand 
folks feel like we, we need to reinstate this process, that it's, it's essentially been taken away from the people by virtue of the Supreme Court ruling that occurred after Initiative 65, the medical cannabis measure, that was contested in court. Supreme Court ruled, yeah, the ballot measure process in Mississippi is really invalid. Uh, and so the legislature went to work hearing from their constituents to reinstate it. The House, I think, kind of took that up first and created legislation to do so. Representative Fred Shanks, I think the Constitution Committee he chairs is where that occurred. Passed the House, got sent to the Senate. They uh, didn't support it. They came up with their own version, and the main difference was that they wanted a higher signature count. So that's where we are. But again, the question is, what do you guys want to put on the ballot? I'll go ahead and say this. I, I know I've said it many times before, but I think it bears repeating. I see three issues that I think would get certified to the ballot for the people to vote on, and I think they likely would pass. That's recreational cannabis, uh, expanding abortion access, and passing Medicaid expansion. My belief is that those are three issues that most people who are the most vocal about reinstating the process object to. Um, But, you know, should we just allow that to happen without any restrictions? Should there be some restrictions on the ballot measure process? There There was some language in the House's version that basically said that you were you would be limited uh, in um, in not allowing measures that would have a significant negative impact. I'm paraphrasing a bit here on the state's finances. Couldn't do that. Uh, that would be irresponsible. And so there would there would be some some testing of that, I guess, before it could go to the ballot. So that would be off the table. I believe that PERS needs an opt-in or opt-out option. It is mandatory at present time that 9% is taken out of your gross pay. No option for any state of Mississippi employee. No 401k option. Even the military has modified their retirement plans to include the old 20, 25 years to a hybrid 401k option plan. Yeah, but they still contribute to Social Security um, there, Gary and Meridian. And and I I get your your request there. Just know that as soon as we did that, one of two things have to happen. Either we have to start cutting benefits immediately to people receiving them under PERS. That wouldn't be very popular. It means that people who have paid in would never see a dime. okay? Um, Or the state would have to come up with the money to stabilize the program. Because it's a pay-as-you-go program. Your amounts paid in, your contributions into the program are simply covering current benefits flowing out. And and same thing with Social Security. So if you're going to make a conversion like that, you've got to have some big one-time funding mechanism to cover all future benefits for people who are in the program or within some number of years of retiring who are expecting that money. So it's not quite as easy as saying, hey, let's just convert this to a defined uh, defined contribution plan. Also know that in in such a case, Gary, that when you run out of money, you run out of money. There ain't no more. That's different than PERS and Social Security. You never run out of money. 
Those benefits are until you die. That's the key distinction. And I know I hammer this point all the time, but it's very important to understand that. That's the what's known as a defined benefit plan. Here's, a, here's your benefits. You get them till you die, as opposed to a defined contribution plan. You contribute to the plan. Whatever you got when you're ready to start drawing out, that's what you got. And it when it's depleted, you're done. So that, it's a little more complicated. What are your thoughts on all this portal and pay for play deal going on? The federal government doesn't need to get involved talking about the NIL stuff. I, I think, as I've said before, I have a bit of a radical view on that. I think we're headed to a point where college athletics will be privatized. Uh, I, I thought that for some time, even before NIL was a thing. I just see it moving in that direction. I know Brian Haydad and Richard Cross disagree with me, and that's fine. It's just a it's just a thought that I have. Um, I don't think there's enough political hay to be made at the federal level for them to even touch it. Uh, I agree, though. Senator Wicker is is involved in some legislation that would address the issue. I, I guess I don't understand why the conferences can't get together and do that. Now you may end up with several. That's what Richard was talking about. They could come up with some rules and regulations around it. Something's going to happen. I think Richard is right, and I think, who was it he said that uh, now's the best time? Was it Kiffin he said? Um, somebody said that. Now's the best time yeah. to to uh, to be a college athlete because it's the Wild West out there right now with respect to that. In fact, I heard, I don't know if you heard this, Rhino, that uh, Quinchon uh, Judkins at Ole Miss, $2.5 million a year? You heard that? You're shaking your head. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Think about that. What's he, 1920? <laughs> Incredible. Man, oh, man. Yeah, uh, let's see. There's something else. Um, Jay from the Rez says, you should have Thomas on your show. We have him on the show every day on the text line. (laughs) Uh, Do you think they're entitled to retirement from the same state? I think that's the biggest problem the majority of the population has with it. Oh, you're talking about additional retirement? Well, they pay into that. You're talking about the supplemental legislative retirement program? I, I, like I said, I mean, that's just such a small amount of money. It, it just That's like um, putting a Band-Aid on the scratch of a patient that's having a heart attack. I, I just don't think that's a big deal. I don't care. They, they contribute to it. State contributes a little bit to it as well. The taxpayers do. It's a tiny amount of money. Just doesn't bother me. Um, I don't know how many people run for office in Mississippi as a legislator so they can participate in the supplemental legislative retirement program. I I dare say, like, none. I don't think that's a big deal to them. They do participate in PERS as well. Somebody said earlier, Rhino, that they'd be willing to contribute more to PERS. You see that? If, uh, if yeah, it, they said I've got 19 years in PERS and I'm willing to kick in more myself. Yeah, I see that. Okay, well that's interesting to know. That that would be an additional contribution from the employee. We already know that a five percent increase in the employer contribution goes into effect about a year from now, July one of next year of 2024. It was delayed originally, slated for October. We have talked to. Uh, municipal leaders when we were at the MML conference a couple of weeks ago, because that means that all public sector employers are going to have to 
they will incur higher expenses on their payroll because the state has now passed this uh, this increase, has enacted this increase. So 5% of their payroll uh, is going to be implemented in their expense model come July 1, 2024. They're going to have to contribute more, not the employee, the employer. What's crazy to me is that when you combine the employer and the employee, after that goes into effect, the employee's 9% change, it's 31% combined, 22 on the employer share, and then 9% on the employee share, total of 31% of every payroll dollar on public sector employees in Mississippi uh, is burden that goes to their PERS retirement account. And that's still not sufficient to totally stabilize its finances. Deep purple with smoke on the water. That's an oldie but a goodie there bumping us out here. Coming right back with a final segment on Middays. with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Back in the Element Well Studio, we uh, thank you for joining us. So I just received a text from my representative, and that is uh, Jill Ford in the House of Representatives. Uh, she said, why would we ever want to become California? I believe they had 19 initiatives on their last ballot. The initiative process is step one in our state, crumbling. Liberals will own us. I stand with Senator Pope. And she agrees that the issues that I espouse, that I thought would uh, be front and center and and really be fast-tracked to the ballot for the people to vote on, that being abortion, recreational cannabis, uh, perhaps decriminalization of illegal drugs. Of course, you got the federal law to deal with there, and and other stuff that she's concerned about. And I do think that is a a common concern in our legislature. So it's it's a bit of a conundrum, Rhino, in that we've got. Well, let's let's take Lieutenant Governor the Lieutenant Governor's race, where Senator McDaniel's made that a key issue in his campaign. Hey, I'm for the ballot measure process. The Lieutenant Governor's not. I think it's fair to say that's kind of the way he's promoted it. And there are others as well running for uh, state office, state house, and state senate that have come out and expressed their their um, support for the ballot measure process. And there are a lot of folks I see out there anecdotally that say, hey, Delbert Hoseman killed the ballot measure process. We can't vote for him. we got to vote for somebody that wants to restore it. So... 
I'm just conveying that if we do that, I think we do end up, as Representative Ford says, with those three issues. Now, if that's what the people want, I guess you could say they they want that in Mississippi. I, I don't know how else to describe it, honestly. Uh, ben from Madison says, it's not so much a particular issue I want on the ballot. For me, And it's it's critical to um, to get this process reinstated because it keeps the legislature in check. I'm not sure I agree with you on that, Ben. It's logical. I'm not saying your thought process is. I really just don't think, Rhino, that members of that legislature, even when we had a ballot measure process, would say, oh, my gosh, we got to vote this way because if we don't, the citizens are going to put a measure on the ballot. I just don't think that ever crosses their mind. What do you think? I think that's a bit of recency bias because of the reaction to 65. Probably so. 65 passed with a pretty substantial margin. It got shut down by the Supreme Court. But at that point, the legislature knew how the people voted that's fair. And voted with their constituents. That's fair. But prior to that, it's not like, well, we better go do this because they're going to stick it on the ballot. That's the point I make. Right. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. That would be the check, in my view. The check would be that they would act sort of preempting a ballot measure process because the fear would be, well, that's going to get on the ballot and the people are going to ratify it and it's going to become law. The sticking point for me, for people trying to pin it on one person or another, is there was plenty of time and plenty of room to meet in the middle between the House and the Senate. Right. You can't just lay it all at the feet of Gunn or all at the feet of Hoseman when they both were too hard-headed to come to the middle and compromise. I, I totally agree with you on that, and, and I, I, I hope I have effectively conveyed that point, is that... I, I get, you know, it's politics. The goal is to win, and the more trash you can hang on your opponent, maybe the better chance you got of winning. I certainly get that. And when your opponent's an incumbent, that's when they're really most vulnerable to that sort of campaigning. I mean, that's just politics. I get that, but it, it doesn't align with reality. And that's why I wanted to share that Senator Polk is an example of a senator, and he's not alone. I don't want to just say, oh, yeah, Senator Polk single-handedly in the Senate. I've talked to senators. Uh, There's a difference of just philosophy and position on key issues between the Senate and the House, and it doesn't just stem from the leaders of those respective chambers. I can't explain it. There's there's just different people a little bit. You've seen them all come through here. Would you sort of agree with that? Oh, yeah. They're just, just a little different. And you know, you could look at the federal level and, and see some distinction in that respect. And maybe it's just a function of having a smaller number. It could be that. 52 in the Senate in our state, 122 in the House. You know, 435 in the U.S. House and 100 in the Senate. It, it could be a function of that. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I just got a text. I can't get to it today from Senator Jeremy England. He's weighing in on the ballot initiative process, but... Uh, basically, he says we got to be careful. I will cover it and read it tomorrow uh, on behalf of the senator. But so you see, right there, there's another situation where that's a little bit at odds with the House, another senator. So I, I think the people are not 
really totally aware of these uh, these dynamics, shall we say. We're out of here today. We thank you so much for joining us. Please tune in tomorrow. A whole lot more to talk about. Stay safe and God bless. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.